Well, I want to talk about church unity from a little bit of a different perspective this morning because it is an important part. Uh, There are churches all over the country that split. And even in our church, we know full well that the flesh can get the best of us with people. And we sometimes have our own ideas about the way things should be. And if they don't turn out that way, we get upset um, because of our selfishness or because we don't get what we want. Sometimes people can be thoughtless and people can say things to you um, that are hurtful and we don't want to forgive. And so we hold on to those things and those things cause divisions. Um, The Spirit of God... When a person becomes a Christian, puts you into a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, tells us this very clearly. Any person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior is placed into, baptized into the body of Christ. So, so if you're saved, whether you want to be a part of a group or not, you are by nature of being a Christian. God never even though our culture is kind of set up this way, and it's becoming more so, um, that life is becoming much more individualistic. Um, Where is it? I have one of these two. And I I am connected to it. It's in my pocket. Um, It wasn't until probably three years ago that I really realized how dependent the young generation is on on these things. Um, I took my daughter to her senior class trip. My wife and I chaperoned that trip down to Myrtle Beach and there were 11 of us, so there were nine students plus the two of us. And from the time we got in the van and left to the time we got home and dropped off, the kids were like this. We were doing activities in the house. We'd put a movie on or something. They're all like this. And it was really eye-opening for us because, you know, I, I, I love technology. Um, I'm the IT guy for the school, so I keep the computers up and, and uh, the wireless systems. And, and I love the latest app as much as the next person does. But there's a point at which you got to realize life is way more than about me. And so if we ever do another senior class trip, there's going to be some rules about devices and when they can be used. But our culture really is pushing us for this. It's pushing us toward this. Um, we have our TVs at home. We sit in front of the TV and we don't talk to anybody. We have our devices, so we, you know, we play Angry Birds or we play whatever the latest game is, and, and we can sit there for hours and not talk to anybody. And when that happens, your whole life changes a little bit into what I would call an individualistic um, setting. And the church is supposed to be the opposite of that. Church was never meant to be an individual thing. And as much information as we can get online, as many televangelists as there are preaching on the television, as many radio shows as there are where you can hear pretty much any pastor anywhere in the world, if you start looking, it's not just the radio, you can, you can go on to blog sites, you can get podcasts, and you can hear pretty much anybody. We can, we can send a podcast out and people can hear us all over the world. You know, we're so connected and we can get so much information, but the church is more than information. 
The church is more than just sitting home and getting a sermon from the person you like. You know, I speak a certain way. I can't really speak any other way because I don't know how. I listen to people and maybe I'll try to change something, an inflection in my voice. But, you know, we, we live in such a consumer-related society that when it comes to church, that's how we think. I don't like the way this guy speaks, so I'm going to go over here. I don't like the youth ministry here, so I'm going to go over there. Uh, these guys have small groups, but these guys don't, so I'm going to go over here. I like the music in this church the best, so I'm going to go over here. And we, and we just like a consumer walking into Walmart and, or Market Basket, you, they're back. <clears throat> you walk into Market Basket and you have choices, right? What kind of soup do you want? I don't know. What do I feel like? And I can choose whatever I want. Church is not meant to be that way. There's a, there's a connection, a faithfulness, a loyalty that should be present uh, in our lives. And it doesn't mean that we can never leave a church and go somewhere else. That happens. My wife and I have been to uh, a few churches in our lives. I'm trying to remember how many now. One, two, three, four, five, but that was one we went to before. So we kind of came back. Six, at least six different churches since we've been married. And some of that's because we've moved different places. Some was you know, down at school or when we have been living different places. Um, but we talk about this as a husband and wife, as parents too. We don't want to be church hoppers. We don't want to, to just every three years up and leave. You know, no matter what happens here. You know, if the church goes off the deep end doctrinally and they start teaching false doctrine, that's one thing. You know, but if it's just because you know, the ministry changes or the music changes or the, the people in the church are not the same as they were 10 years ago, you know, there's, a, there's a loyalty and there's a, there's, there's a connection here that we need to look at. And it's not because unity is just great for the sake of unity. And don't get me wrong, unity is awesome. And you know this, when your family is getting along well, isn't it a whole lot better than when they're not? I don't like when my kids fight, because then we have to deal with it, and, we have, and that's parenting, I know, we have, and we have to teach them, and we have to uh, talk about them, but unity has its, its benefits. One of them is it's simply more pleasant to live when people are unified. It's much more pleasant to come to a place like this when people actually like each other and are getting along and, and are, are nice to each other and are kind to each other and, and things like that, and so that has a personal benefit to me when the group that I'm involved with is getting along. I mean, just look at Market Basket. I'm going to bring them up as an example again, right? I mean, the thing boiled down to greed and a family feud. There wasn't a whole lot written about the detail of what that feud was, but that's what it was. They couldn't get along. And look how many people it affected. You know, the larger the group, the, the more effect it has on people around you when you're, when you're not getting along with each other. And so there's, there's benefit to having unity, um, unity within a marriage. Isn't it more desirable to have unity between husband and wife than not? Of course it is. I don't like when my, you know, there are times like every marriage where my wife and I look at things from two opposite directions. I think it would be best to go this direction. She thinks it would be best to go this direction. And sometimes those, those times can become unpleasant when we're trying to work those things out. It's much nicer when 
we both agree on things and it's just moving in a direction together. It's, it's just more pleasant. It's easier. Um, you could say the same thing about companies that you work for. You know, nobody wants to go into work when there's fighting all the time and people can't get along and people have their own agendas. So the personal and corporate benefits of unity abound. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely a, a benefit to it. And we could just stay right there, I guess, and talk about the benefits of unity to our church, but that's not really what I want to get at this morning. There's a deeper, a much, much deeper reason why we should be concerned about unity in our church than, than just that. I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look just at a single verse this morning. I'm going to read it in its context. It's uh, verse 15. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and in his letter to Timothy, he talks to him about the organizational structure of a church. And I could, I could spend a long time on this this morning as well, and it's actually something that I'd like to uh, do either as a class or a series with you at some point. Um, there are a lot of people who gather together and call themselves churches, but they're not necessarily you know, there is some order and some structure that God put in his word about what makes a church a church. You know, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, so let's get together at my house for coffee and we'll call it church. Not necessarily church. There is some structure, there is some organization, there are actually an office um, talked about here. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, it's a, a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then it gives the qualifications for that man. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God. Not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must also have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's qualifications for men that God is going to place into a church to oversee and take care of it. A second one is deacon, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested. Tested by who? By what? There's a, there's a process here that God puts into place so that the church can be organized under the direction of spiritual men who are saved who have the Spirit of God leading them, and there's a testing process that goes on to make sure that not just anybody becomes a leader of the church. This is God's rules. We're not making this up. This is what God says. Women, and this would be, um, you can argue about deaconess, whether it's a deaconess in an office or not, but these are women who serve in the church. Let, uh, uh, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. 
For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, Paul said to Timothy. But in case I'm delayed, I write, and here's the context of our verse, I'm writing all these things to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what the church is. We're, we're a local manifestation of a much larger body. Every person who's come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, who is justified, as I mentioned earlier, gets baptized into the church. So whether whether you are actually here or there or anywhere else, you are a member of God's, what we would call the universal church. Every person who's born again on the face of the planet right now is a part of that universal church. We here in Methuen at Fellowship Bible Church, we are one local manifestation of that church. We're actually part of a bigger organization, even though we're not denominational in that sense. We're still a part of, of what goes on. There's, there's churches up in Deering, where we just were, where all the folks at the, at the wilds go. We are brothers and sisters with them. And their church needs to be operated under these same principles. It's not just fellowship, it's, it's all of us. Um, so the reason to pursue unity at Fellowship Bible Church goes beyond... Us. It goes beyond the benefit that it brings to us. So we could say the same thing about salvation. I just want to kind of drive this home at the beginning. What are some of, you can, you can tell me, what are some of the benefits to you of knowing Jesus Christ personally as Savior? What do you gain in life? You have peace. That's a big one. There are so many people today who have no peace in their lives. They lay down at night, every night, wondering why they're here, what is going on. The things in the world upset them. Honestly, when I lay down at night, my heart is totally calm. And that's not because of me. That's because of what God's done in my heart. I don't worry about a thing. I really don't. There's no point in it. Why should I worry when God has everything in control? And even if the bad things come in my life, he knows all about them before they're there, and he has a reason for them. So I can trust in him because I know God. Peace, that's a huge one. What else? What's the benefit of being saved? Joy. Joy. Yeah, we, he, the speaker up at the Wilds was just talking about that. Or actually, it was Rand. He says, you know, especially here in New England, Rand is from North Carolina, so he's a transplant. He comes up here to New England, and he says, you know, New England is, is kind of strange compared to the rest of the world. People are kind of sour-mouthed. I don't know how you put it. I forget the word he used, but they don't tend to have joy just bubbling out over them, you know. And so for us as a Christian, to walk around smiling and, and happy, people look at you weird. What is that all about? Well, it's true. Jesus Christ came so that you might have joy and that your joy might be full, he said. Absolutely. That's a, that's a benefit of salvation, the joy that he brings to your life. What else? Assurance. Assurance. Isn't it great to know that when your life, whenever the time is, ends, you know where you're going? 
to have a hope, man, that is a benefit to me. It's one of the greatest ones. I'm not afraid to die. I'm not trying to die, but I'm not afraid to die. I'm a little bit of a thrill seeker, too. I would have gone on that zip line upside down, hanging by my feet, if they let me. I like doing that stuff, but I don't have a death wish. It's not like I wanted to fall or anything. But when it's my time, however that happens, if it's old age or an accident or an illness, I'm ready to go. It's like the song she, she picked earlier today, Beyond the Sunset, you know. I know what's there because I know what God has promised. And it's going to be way better than anything here, that's for sure. But we have that hope. We have that assurance. That's great. And so we could, we could talk about the benefits of salvation all day long. But what's the real reason you, you get saved? It's not any of those things. You don't get saved because you need assurance. You don't get saved because you need joy. You don't get saved because you need peace. You get saved because you're in trouble if you don't. You get saved because you were born in sin, and sin is what will keep you from God. Isaiah 59 says, Your sins have separated you from your God. And the only way that you can get into a right relationship with God is through Jesus, his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's where we are. We're perishing. But God loved us, sent his son to take the punishment for our sin in our place, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he gives that to us freely. The cost was high. The cost was his son. But, but that's why we need to be saved. It's not because of the benefits. There are, the benefits are multiplied. You can read all about them in the New Testament. There's more than we just mentioned here this morning. But the need to be saved isn't because of the benefit. And that's what I want to relate to you this morning. The unity in the church has tons of benefits, but we don't, we're not striving for unity just, just so that we can get along. We're not striving for unity just so that we can be pleasant with each other and have a good experience when we come here on Sunday morning. There's a much, much deeper reason. And it's found here in verse 15 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So the first point I want to make to you this morning is that church unity is vital because the church is God's property. How many of you own property? Well, you know, the bank owns part of it, I'm sure. But apart from the mortgages that we have, how many of you own property? Raise your hand high. All right, you've got something that you own, whether it's land, it might be an object like an automobile or something. When you have people come to your property, do you have any specific rules for them? Would you let them light a fire in your living room? Would you let them go into the bathroom and plug up the drain and, and run the water? You say, no, that would be stupid. It would ruin my house. Right. So you have rules for your house. Well, guess what? God has rules for his house. And the reason we want to pursue unity is that reason. 
This church does not belong to me or Pastor Dan or Pastor Stringer or the elders or any of the leaders of this church. This is not our church. As much as we may want to say, this is my, and yeah, there's a sense of connection, so we call it my church. I do call this my church, and, and I should. But it doesn't belong to me. You're not my property. And I can't stand up here and dictate to you what's going to happen, but God can. And that's my job, is just to be a, a focal point for God. And so I'm teaching, I, I read what's in here, and God's gifted me to teach, and so I teach you. And that's, and that's what we're doing this morning. But if you go into somebody's house, I mean, at, at its very essence, it's not hard to understand that when you're in somebody's el- someone else's house, you have to be aware of what they want you to do or not do. Yes? We, um, the Andersons, who are up at the camp right now, they have a, a camp of their own up in northern Maine on Lake Aziskahas. If you've never been there, ask them to invite you. It's a beautiful spot. Um, he has hosted the father-son retreats here at the church for 10 or 12 years now. And I've gone up there. Tim's gone up there. I'm seeing a few of you. Uh, Ron's been up there. Um, the first thing that Dan does at the father-son retreat, so there's you know, 20, 20 guys between fathers and sons. They all show up there, and, and the boys are just like, we want to go. We look at the four-wheelers. There's a lake. I want to get on the boat. I want to go fishing. I want to do all this stuff. And they're just like, you got to reel them in, right? Well, Dan, before any of that happens, has the whole group sit down. And he takes about 45 minutes, and you can see these little eight-year-old boys. They're like, <laughs> and we're like, listen to Mr. Anderson. He has the voice of wisdom here, you know. There's some dangers up there. It's a very remote place. It takes two hours to drive to a hospital. Somebody gets hurt, you've got a long drive ahead of you to try to get out of there. You're on logging roads for about 45 minutes before you even hit a paved road uh, to get out. So he has rules, and he lays out all of those rules. Some of the rules have to do with eating and drinking in the can. Some of them have to do with lake safety. Some of them have to do with... Um, riding on the machines, some of them have to do with setting up and taking down trash, burning things, you know, all of that. And he goes over everything one step at a time, and we all listen and nod our heads, and, and then when we're done, we take off, right? But when we take off, guess what? We've now got those rules in our heads, and if the, if the boys don't abide by the rules, they're in trouble. Because they have to, because it's not our place. It's his place. And I tell my boys before we get up there, Mr. Anderson's going to tell you what he expects of you, and you need to respect him. Whatever his rules are, you need to respect him because this is his camp. And I say that flat out to them, you know, and that's, and that's my rule as a dad for them. But that's what we're talking about. You want to honor the wishes, the rules, the standards of the person's house that you're in. Somebody doesn't want you to smoke, don't smoke. You know, if you're staying overnight and they have particular rules, you're going to abide by those. And I don't think there's a person here who can't relate to this. So look at verse 15. Paul says, In case I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. So, 
the household of God is really the, the phrase I want you to key in on here this morning. And the first thought is, you know, we ought to be striving for what God expects. And by the way, just keep your finger there in 1 Timothy and turn to Ephesians 4. This passage doesn't really deal with church unity, but I wanted to bring it into this idea. We could really use it uh, for multiple topics this morning. But in Ephesians 4, Paul is giving the church at Ephesus, again, instruction about how you should behave. Verse 2 says we should behave with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And then here he says it in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it is our responsibility in God's house to preserve the unity that he's created among us, which is one of the great blessings of, the, of knowing Christ in the church. You and I come from totally different backgrounds. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care if you're male or female. I don't care if you're 80 years old or 20 years old. You and I have a connection if we're saved. And we're part of that body. And it's my responsibility to preserve the unity that God's put between you and me in Christ. And that's part of what we want to do. And why? Because it's, it's God's house. But this passage in 1 Timothy is even more compelling than that. Because we are not simply guests in God's house. And I want you to, this is where it goes a little bit one step deeper here. You know, we can... It's easy for us to think of this building as a house because it's a building with walls and a roof and a foundation just like our house. And so we come here and we say, all right, this is God's house, but that is not God's house. If this, if this building burnt down and, was and were destroyed, we would still be God's house, the household of God. The Greek word here is oikos, and it could be translated house, just like you think of a house, a dwelling place where you stay. But really, a better translation of it is what, um, what it says in the New American Standard that I'm reading this morning, the household of God, which goes a little bit beyond house. So if you came over to my house, over at 32 Cross Street, I could open up the door and you could come into my house. But my household is more than my house. The household is Teresa and Nathan and Ryan and two cats. That's my household. It's the people who live there. They are the household. And that, I think, is really what Paul was driving at in this passage. What in, what's in view here is not a physical structure, but a family. That's what we are. We are God's family. In either case, we're compelled to think of ourselves as a church in, in terms of belonging to God. Because if you look at that um, prepositional phrase, who does, who does the household belong to? The household, what's the next two words? Of God. And that word of specifically refers to the ownership. It's God's household. You and I belong to God. We are the family of God. We are God's household, and that's what should compel us um, to view ourselves differently and be obedient to what God says, even when it comes to, to unity. I want to um, look at a couple of 
other ways that this word is used, this word oikos as household. Right in the same chapter, if you go back to verse 4, one of the qualifications of an elder was to be able to manage his own household. So it wasn't necessarily talking about a building there, was it? An elder wasn't you know, required to keep the plumbing and the, the electrical and, and the house up to date. I think he was talking about his family. Well, I know he was. That's what he says in verse 4. He who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. And so the household was the family. It was the people, not just the building. Um, verse 5 says the same thing. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how shall he take care of the church of God. The deacons in verse 12 were the same thing, um, managers of their children and their own households. That's all the word oikos. It's the same, same word. Um, look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. It's just two books over. Um, sorry, uh, verse 11, t- Titus Chapter 1, verse 11. In verse 10, Paul's writing to Titus and warning him that there will be many people who are out to teach a false gospel, false doctrine. He says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole, what? Households or families, that's the same word, oikos. So it's referring to the family. Ephesians 2 says we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. It's oikos. Um, Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Oikos, same word. Hebrews 3.6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his oikos, over his house, whose house we are, it says in Hebrews. And so no matter where you look in the New Testament, the idea that, that we are God's house, it's not a physical building, but we are as an organism, we are a family. We belong to God. And the church itself is his. The force of the preposition of, back in verse 15, is that of what we would call causal force or ownership. This is the living God's church. It's his. Just as you would claim over ownership over your house and your family, God claims ownership of his. This is my house, my family. And so Paul states emphatically that this is the living God's church. And any thought that leads us to believe that, that we control the church because we invented it, we made it up, we contr- it's, it's not right. We're his. Who conceived of the church in the first place? It wasn't men. Men, you know, there are clubs all over the place that I can belong to. I love snowmobiling. I belong to a snowmobile club. I've taken Ryan fishing all summer long on Fridays and caught a ton of good fish. I could belong to a fishing club. I could go golfing and belong to the country club. I could go anywhere and belong to any club I want. The church is not a club. It's not just people with common interests coming together and say, hey, let's, I, I like 
the teaching of the word of God, so let's get together and, and do this together. This was something beyond that. God conceived of the church. It wasn't us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, you don't need to turn to it, it says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister. God made Paul a minister of his church. Paul didn't start the church. According to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All that to say, what we experience as a church today was God's idea. It was, it was formed in his mind that Jesus Christ would be in you, living his life out through you was God's plan. We are, this is God's church. Who builds the church? Matthew 16. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. It belongs to him. Who paid for the church? Jesus Christ paid for the church with his own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And so it's not ours. And this should immediately lead us back to that first part of um, verse 15, to think about how we should conduct ourselves because this isn't our place. When I come together with you, I have a responsibility that God puts on me to treat you a certain way because you and I are part of a family that he created. Some kids complain about the family they're born into. Wish I was never born in this family. You hear that enough. I don't like the rules of this house. So I could live with my friend. His parents are better. You know, and sometimes that happens. Our own kids have said that in our house. You know, in moments of frustration. But they didn't go. Why not? Because you're my family. And when it comes down to it, that's the most important thing. Right? My kids aren't going to just go off and live in another family because we love them. We, we, we created them. You know? We feed them. We provide for them. We create an environment for them. And they belong to us. So they can't just go. Church unity is also vital because the church is the representation of the truth and the reality of God. If you go down just one more phrase in that verse... It's the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And what is it, what's it called? The pillar and support of the truth. This is what really we're all about. Why do we need to be unified? It's not just so that we can be pleasant with each other. It's because God is displaying through us a greater truth than us. The character of God, the attributes of God, people have no clue. I would have had no clue if somebody from the church had not opened my eyes and told me about God. And as I came into the church and watched how people lived, it was different. There was a, a marked difference between how people treated each other at Bill Ricca High School and how they treated each other at Church of the Open Bible in Burlington. Way different. Nobody swore at me at church. Nobody walked down the hall and knocked the books out of my hand at church. 
Nobody came to me and was, was trying to tell me about all of their exploits that they did the last weekend and how awesome it was to throw up all over the place at church. All the stuff that I got at Bill Ricca High School, it, there was something way, way different. There was a, a holiness. People were concerned about what was right and wrong. They were, they were talking to God. They were worshiping God, and this was, this was so different than what I was used to. And that's what the church does. We uphold the truth of God, and we represent it to a world that needs to hear it. Interesting thing here about the pillar and support of the church. Ephesus was a place where um, there was a famous temple. Anybody know the name of the temple? The Temple of Diana. Okay, its ruins still exist. Uh, today you can go see it, but the Temple of, of Diana was this magnificent structure with a huge roof that was supported by tw- 127 different pillars. And each one of those pillars was a gift from a king from another country. And the king would have that pillar carved so that whatever it was about himself or his country would show up on that pillar in carvings, kind of like artwork. And so as you walked into the Temple of Diana, it was a very cosmopolitan place. It would remind me of New York City. You can, go, you can go there and see everybody in the world. That was the Temple of Diana. It represented the king. And each pillar was a tribute to that king. What is the church? It's the pillar of who? The king, the true king. The truth of God is the pillar, the ground and pillar, the support of the truth. The truth of God, that God exists, that he's the creator, that he's the savior, that he is the judge. And as we live together as a family, his family, we become the expression of God to people. We are the source, the ground of the truth. There's a reality of God that's revealed in his word, that he's the source of all life, he sustains all life, he's the savior, he's the judge, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that we have sinned and that the only way to take care of that sin is through the sacrifice, belief in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All men are doomed to judgment. Christ paid for that sin. All men are called to repent and believe in Christ and that trusting in Christ brings salvation to people. That's the truth. It's here But how does it get out to to where people are? It's through us. It's through the church. So the whole point this morning, as you're thinking about Fellowship Bible Church, as you think about coming here, think about yourself as more than just somebody who comes and sits on a Sunday morning. You are a part of the organism of God, the family of God, the family that belongs to God. And we ought to be seeking unity, not for our own sakes, but for his, for God's sake which means I have a responsibility to you to give grace. When you insult me, I need to give you grace. Why? Because God gave me grace. When you offend me, I need to give you forgiveness right away and not hold a grudge. Why? Because God gave me forgiveness right away when I asked him. And when I give forgiveness to you, I am clearly demonstrating the forgiveness of God. When I want something to happen and you don't do it my way, I need to exercise patience with you. Why? Because 
I don't do things God's way all the time, and he's very patient with me. I still stumble in the dark. I still fall. I still sin. I still say dumb things to my wife that I shouldn't say. I still get angry with my kids, even though I shouldn't get angry with my kids. I'm still tempted by things in the world that I shouldn't be tempted by. And when those things happen, if God just held a grudge against me and said, forget it, I'm done with you. It doesn't happen. God never says that. His forgiveness is eternal. And so when I exercise patience toward you because you're not doing things the way I want, I am demonstrating God's life. And so are you when you do it to other people. That's what the church is all about. In case I'm delayed, write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So let's think of ourselves that way. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to be into your word, and I pray that um, what we have talked about this morning might be a reality in our life. Lord, help us to be uh, what we ought to be because we belong to your family. You made the rules. This is your house. Help us not to make it into something else. Help us to realize that we are the ground and pillar, the support of the truth of God. The truth will never change, but Lord, we have the responsibility of being billboards for the truth so that when people come in here and they view us, they, they see how we treat each other, they will see you. They'll see your character. They'll see the truth of God and the gospel at work. And I pray that this would be the driving force behind our relationships here at the church and pray that you'd help us um, to enjoy the rest of our weekend and pray that um, you'll be with us and help us to remember these things in Christ's name. Amen.